The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, with a interesting and historical episode for you today. We're talking to uh, a woman named Suzanne Veach. She is the president of Kinsey Manufacturing, Kinsey Machinery. I, I'll make sure I get this exactly right. Kinsey Incorporated. Anyway, they're a manufacturing, short line um, farm machinery implement company out of Iowa. She's going to give us some history, but Basically, if you are in agriculture, if you are even on the coast and you've driven through the Great Plains and the Midwest, about harvest time, you'll see these large machines out there being towed behind a tractor. We call them grain carts. Some people call them other stuff, catch wagons, grain buggies. Anyway, that's the product that put this company on the map. We're going to talk about uh, what is happening in farm machinery, what's happening in short lines. Uh, is the strike at John Deere going to impact the entire machinery business? Are the supply chains going to make it so you can't get the equipment? equipment you need. That's kind of already happening. Uh, we're going to talk about all those things and more. Also, we're going to talk about being a woman as a president in a machinery uh, business in the farm and agricultural community where you're like, wait a minute, that was her dad's company. And it was, it was her dad's company and now she's taking over. So anyway, her name's Suzanne Veach. Welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast. Thank you, Damian. I appreciate you having me today. Okay, so lots of stuff to cover. Um, we always try to talk about really cool business-minded stuff. We're going to get into that, but just a little history. I know about Kenzie, uh, blue pieces of equipment, uh, grain carts, um, a few other things. I'm, I'm thinking you're going to tell me about it, and you're an Iowa-based company. But for everybody else, give us a little background on what Kenzie is and does. Yeah, so Kenzie is uh, located in Williamsburg, Iowa, uh, eastern Iowa, and we have about 650 employees and we have a second manufacturing facility in Vilnius, Lithuania for our Eastern Europe and Russia business. Kinsey was started in 1965 by my dad. It started as a welding shop uh, where farmers would come in with problems they had or things that were broken and needed fixed and he would make them better. And he came up with a lot of great ideas as a result of rubbing shoulders with farmers and listening to their problems. And that you know, eventually evolved into uh, solutions that uh, have put us on the map today. For example, like the uh, large tired two-wheeled grain cart, um, the folding planter, uh, those sorts of things. So today our products are planters, grain carts, and tillage equipment. 650 employees. And, you know, uh, I always love great entrepreneurial stories. I wrote about them in my book, Do Business Better, which is right over my shoulder. Um, I'm guessing that John Kinzenbaugh, your father, uh, not a not a not a traditionally trained um, college degreed mechanical engineer yet has uh, through being a practical, hardworking guy and farmers come to him with a need, then said, you know what, I think I can help satisfy a need with my mechanical ingenuity. So is that kind of the story there? Just uh, a guy with a shop and, uh, and a desire to build a better product? 
Yeah. And I think that's very true of a lot of farmers. You know, a lot of farmers are very mechanically minded. They grew up learning how to fix things alongside their dad on the farm. Um, the necessity of having equipment requires things being fixed and learning how to do that. And, you know, my dad had definitely had a mechanical uh, background like that growing up on a farm, but also just a God-given natural ability to be innovative and creative and come up with solutions that made sense and worked in the field. So um, <clears throat> the machinery biz, and I want to also talk to you about the thing going on with Lithuania. I mean, I knew you probably sold some equipment in uh, countries besides in the United States, but that's pretty interesting. We're going to get to that in a minute. So the background is, um, came up with the, you know, some, some good innovation and said, I'm going to start out this own, my own company. I mean, I've got a welding shop, farm background, et cetera, um, but I'm going to start doing this thing. The first product was not the grain cart. That was the innovative product that puts you on the map. The first product was sort of improved planters, improved tillage stuff. Is that what we're doing? Um, yeah, a lot of one-off uh, projects, you know, like um, he, he made a four-wheeled grain cart, uh, anhydrous bar, um, repowered tractors, you know, very early on, put put Detroit diesel engines in John Deere tractors. And uh, and also his first patent uh, was a 12 bottom adjustable plow. And he had that mass produced through a friend of his, Bill Dietrich at DMI Manufacturing out in Illinois. So um, again, a lot of one-off products uh, and eventually those turned into mass produced like the, uh, the plow that DMI produced. And then of course for Kinsey, uh, the two-wheel grain cart, which was our first mass produced product. I'm sure that, uh, well, it, it predates you, um, the, the story behind the first grain cart. So I'm a kid growing up on a farm in Indiana. We used gravity bed wagons or gravity wagons. And to look at them now, that seems very quaint because the average hopper in the average combine holds about two times as much as a little Parker brand, uh, gravity wagon did in 1975, let's say, um, most people probably are like, okay, what are you talking about? Well, you know, it was just a hopper wagon, if you will, that, uh, you know, you pulled up and that way the grain tumbled out the side of it. Um, then we kept getting more yield and we kept seeing a need for bigger, better products. What do you think happened there? Uh, your old man was sitting there one day and one of his farm buddies says, you know what I really need, John? I need a bigger piece of equipment I can drag around in that field right next to my combine. Is that what, is that what happened? Well, really, I think uh, it, it had to do with, uh, I mean, yes, certainly that that is probably true. But that particular year, I believe it was wet and the issue of trying to get things efficiently in and out of the field without getting stuck. And, you know, like a four wheeled wagon uh, was much more uh, easy to get stuck than something with large flotation tires. And, and that was an idea he had to uh, put on a grain cart. And of course, you know, today grain carts, you see pretty much uh all of the features are copies of what he did back in the early 70s with the two-wheeled grain cart. And, and that's what we know today. And of course, grain carts are in very large capacities. Also, interesting note, you know, that that like Parker-like uh, gravity wagon that you mentioned, his friend, Bill Dietrich uh, uh, at DMI made those and my dad promised him to not compete. So we never got into that business um, of those gravity carts. And instead, you know, we went the direction of the the uh, dual auger two wheeled grain carts that, of course, you know, we know today that come in many different sizes um, as as production has gotten a lot more efficient. Uh, the grain carts, as you as you said, they're much, much bigger today than when you were a kid. 
Did the first grain cart, grain buggy, what's the other words you hear for them when they call you up? Those are the two that I would use. Somebody, yeah, or, the, or wagons maybe or in, years ago. But yeah, grain grain carts typically is what we call them today. Did the first one, Susie, have a uh, auger on it or did that come on the second generation? Uh, the two-wheeled one would have, you know, he, he had a one-off uh, four-wheeled um, grain wagon, I guess you'd call it, that he made for a local farmer. But the the first uh, two-wheel grain cart would have been an auger wagon. Sure. All right. Talk to me about the machinery business. You grew up in it, I assume, or mm-hmm. was it a deal where you grew up and mom and dad said, you go away for a while, then come back? Or did they say, you're a girl, you don't need to be in the farm machinery business? What was it like growing <laughs> up and then coming back to, or when did you come back? Yeah, no, I, I did grow up in the business. Um, the business was very much a part of our family. We'd go on uh, family vo- vacations in a motorhome and wherever we were traveling, my dad had maps of where our dealers were, and, and we'd often try to stop and visit dealers on our way around wherever we were going. Um, and so, and, and then, of course, uh, the business was a part of our lives. You know, a lot of our events and activities um, we were very involved in. And that, that's one thing I have to say that I really appreciate about my dad is he always involved uh, my brother and I in whatever activities were going on that that we could be with him, you know, whether it was moving dirt in the bulldozer to build his next building. We spent many hours. I spent many hours riding with him and equipment. Um, and, and then as I got older and enjoyed coming out to the office with him, you know, in the summer when I was out of school, um, I'd sit in meetings with him. I just, I always loved the business and our people. And, and that's what makes our company great is the people that we have. And, uh, so, you know, as a kid, I rubbed shoulders with, many of our employees, um, and was very involved. So, um, you know, I, I knew one day that I may have interest in being involved in the business, which is why I went to Iowa state and got a business degree. Um, and you know, my dad also said that if, if I wish to come back to the business, I needed to go elsewhere and be successful first, which I think, uh, our people really appreciate that, you know, I went somewhere else, saw the, the, uh, large size of business because I worked for Caterpillar, uh, after college for a number of years and then came back. Um, and it was, it, you know, I've, I've interned with other very large companies during my time in college. And no matter what company I've worked for over the years prior to coming to Kinsey, um, of course, I worked some summers uh, here at Kinsey as a kid too, and, and really worked through a lot of the different departments, uh, you know, in the organizations when I was much younger. But, but the different companies that I worked for over the years in internships and when I worked at Caterpillar, um, really increase my appreciation for the company that we have and the people we have and the quality of product that we build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, the thing is, I'm glad you told the story there. I, I've been in 28 years, I've worked for a lot of organizations speaking at events. And I've also spoken to like the Farm Equipment Manufacturer Association, which you're probably a part of and some of these other things. But these uh, family businesses that uh, continue to grow and thrive. One thing that I think is neat, and I've worked for a lot of them where they say, I grew up in it, but they told me to go away for a while and come back. You know, you come in with a different perspective and you see a lot of, and I I think that if we had, if I had a business and I had kids, which I do have a business, but I don't have kids, I would (laughs) say go away for a while because you'll become, you know, that difference between age 22 and age 32 is not 10 years. It can be 20 years compacted Mm -hmm. into there if you do it right of growth and and evolution. So I'm glad to hear that you did that. When'd you come back? 
uh, I came back in 2005 full time into the business. Of course, I had worked, you know, a number of years prior to that. But uh, really, I hadn't worked prior to uh, high school. So, you know, in the years I was away at college and working for Caterpillar, a, a lot changed over those years that I was gone. The business grew quite a bit. So, you know, there was uh, even more of a learning curve when I returned just because of the growth that had happened while I was gone. And the other thing I would say, too, is we farm as a family. We still farm. Uh, my husband and I farm today. My dad uh, always farmed you know, as an owner of the company. And that gives us a unique perspective because we use our equipment. Yeah. We know the farmer's frustrations and challenges in the field. You know, I was driving equipment um, at the young age of eight or nine or 10 years old. You know, the, the tractor and grain cart was the first thing I drove by myself along run alongside the, the combine. And so, you know, understanding how the equipment works and using it and being out in the field is, is a great perspective of being a business owner for a company like ours, because, you know, a lot of our competitors, the executives, they just, they don't farm because that's not their backgrounds and, right. and that's not something that they choose to do. So I think that that makes us very unique as a company in agriculture. I would agree with that. Yeah. So one thing to say, I went to a product demo. Uh, I got I got out of my office and went to a product demo. And it's another thing to say, no, hell, I I, I use these things every day. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about the machinery biz. You know, we talk about two evolutions, the evolution of Kinsey. Well, we talk about three evolutions, the evolution of you, the evolution of you as a professional, the evolution of the company. Also, the evolution of the business. We already talked about the size yeah, they've mm -hmm. gotten bigger and more bushels uh, because we get more bushels per acre because we're so darn good at production agriculture. You need bigger equipment, yada, yada. We go. What else has evolved? Um, there, there still are small specialty companies, um, short lines, I guess you call them, uh, doing like what you do. Um, I'm thinking of the ones I see around and, you know, way more about it than I do, you know, Badger, uh, Kinsey, uh, Sunflower, these different things like this. But then there's also consolidation kind of to walk us through that to the person that uses the equipment, doesn't completely have a finger on it every day like you. What's going on? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I would say that as you look at the uh, equipment manufacturing business, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation over the years, you know, more recent years where the big companies are gobbling up the little companies. And it's, it's sad to see, you know, those smaller uh, companies go away because many of them often are very innovative like we are. And once a big company uh, acquires them, typically you see that innovation get lost, you know, just because of the sheer size and the way that big companies do business. So, um, you know, that's been... you, Susie, typically, whether it's farm machinery or any other thing, because um, I see it and you see it, big companies, it's all about being big, economies of scale, commoditization, mm -hmm. how, how much can we get three more cents per minute off of the line versus the smaller, more nimble companies, they can't just compete on economies of scale. They're saying three cents is neat, but you know what? We need a complete shift. We need something completely different. Mm -hmm. And that's how that whole thing works. You probably got folks still, even at your size, that are over there saying, now nah, let's, let's just completely change this up. And that maybe doesn't happen to the bigger. Is that what's still happening? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, being privately owned and being involved in the business, you know, some owners own a company, but they're absent. And I think there's a big difference about owners being actually in and day to day involvement of the business, like, like I am and, and uh, like my dad is, and, you know, we can make decisions very, very quickly. Now that doesn't mean we make rash decisions. It can lead to that. You know, you definitely need some structure and, and we have, 
um, an executive team that uh, we lean on very heavily and, and we, we try to get as much advice as we can from uh, the right people when we're making a major decision. But, you know, the difference with a company like ours is we can make those decisions. We don't need, you know, a committee and to run it up the ladder and, and all the different things that you see at the big companies that often encumber them from progress because it takes them too long to make a decision because they have to get so many people involved and, you know, it may have to mean certain things budget wise. Um, you know, there's times when we see an opportunity that we may say, okay, that's not in the budget, but this is an opportunity. We need to take advantage of it. Dear listeners, this woman who I do not know until now is speaking some sort of special language to me. It's almost like I said, oh, my God, when she said we don't have to make decisions by committee, which encumbers, I think she said encumbers change. I wrote a business book and I talk about entrepreneurial mindset versus commodity. We work for an employer mindset. I talked about that exact thing when everybody's in charge. Ain't nobody in charge. Nobody's in charge. Like, right. Everybody's <laughs> got to make a decision. Ain't nobody going to make a decision mm-hmm. because, oh, I'm going to have that come back on me. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. Yeah. While, we're, um, while we're taking this little breather here to talk about how she's speaking my language, I want to remind <laughs> you, dear listener at, uh, and viewer, that in addition to great content right here at the Business of Agriculture uh, podcast, and you can see all my stuff at DamianMason.com, you also are encouraged to go to the Damian Mason channel. Go to YouTube, just type in my name, Damian Mason, and just hit subscribe. Don't cost you nothing, and you'll see all my great content, video commentary I put out about agriculture, business, life, whatever. Um, and also, I'd like you to, if you're a production agricultural expert, which means you're a farmer and you are a professional farmer, you want to do it to make money, you want to up your game, check out the work I'm doing with Extreme Ag, X-T-R-E-M-E, Extreme Ag dot farm. Extreme Ag was founded by some forward-thinking farmers that said, we're going to work really hard at achieving some huge yields and we're going to trial some new products. So they're doing that. And you can see the content I'm helping them produce. You can uh, see what they're doing with some new biologicals, for instance, or maybe a, a, a new farming practice. And then you can learn from their successes and their failures. So go to extremeag.farm and check that out. All right. Talking to Suzanne Veach, sometimes goes by Susie. Talking about the evolution of the business and the evolution of equipment. In the farm machinery business, okay, you get sold through dealers, um, and I want you to explain a little bit about that. You know, mm-hmm. John Deere, obviously, <clears throat> they've got their own dealers. They're consolidating their dealers, or at least the ownership of that. Used to be in my hometown, Huntington, Indiana. We had a case. We had a John Deere. We had an IH. And we went down the road in a little town called Bippus, had a white farm equipment dealer. Um, now there's the case, IH. And they've got very little equipment on the lot. And then there's the John Deere. And they're not owned locally. They're owned through this spread thing where now one owner owns a dozen stores or something like that. But I don't see your equipment sitting there. Is it a challenge as the continual sort of consolidation of dealerships of the biggers to get the short line stuff out there? Or is it being sold without a dealer and just maybe going through an internet? What's that look like right now, Susie? Yeah, well, no, our, our dealers are really important to us. And we have a dealer network of, uh, you know, 250 plus dealers uh, all around the uh, Midwest and, and up through the East Coast. And, um, you know, what you're seeing right now is the result of all the, you know, off the heels of COVID with the supply chain issues and, and products not being available uh, 
I mean, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, everybody is facing these challenges right now with availability. And so uh, interestingly, the last two weeks, I've been doing quite a bit of dealer travel and, you know, going to various dealers. It doesn't matter if it's a independent dealer that doesn't have a major brand and, and carries just short lines, or if it's a major brand carrier, those dealers are really hurting for inventory. And, and many of them are doing everything they can to buy up, you know, used equipment, uh, other places that they can resell just to have equipment on their lots. And uh, so it's, it's uh, interesting times where dealer inventory is very, very low. And, uh, you know, it's a good position to be in when dealer inventory is low because, of course, there's demand to buy new products yeah. in a normal business cycle. But in this business cycle where there's shortages of components, um, it's very frustrating for all of us. It's frustrating for us as a manufacturer to not be able to vi- build the volume of products that you have demand for because you're limited from the supply chain side. And our dealers are experiencing the same thing. So we have dealers... Um, you know, there, there are many different brands and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that that's very beneficial to us and to the farmer, of course, you know, we're a short line. So many of our dealers, uh, have to carry other brands because they want to have a tractor. They want to have a combine, uh, some of the things that we don't have. Do you see, yeah. And, uh, we'll talk about the supply here in a second, but back on the, the business arrangement. Tesla's rattling everybody here in the whole car thing. Um, Elon Musk, I always say he's either the most brilliant human being on the planet or a brilliant con artist. He might be a, it might be a combination of both, but he says, no, nah, we don't need those dealers. Why have those acres of cars sitting out there? You're going to go to a kiosk and you're going to sit in there and simulate what it's like to have a Tesla and then uh, we'll ship it to you. Something like this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. See that ever coming to farm machinery? Well, you know, certainly we're seeing a lot more business being done online, you know, the convenience of being able to order, say, parts online. Um, but I think the thing that differs us from automotive uh, in a lot of ways is, you know, a lot of this equipment is very complex and um, a lot of these farmers are very rural and they, they still need service support, you know. So the dealers are important because um, while we could say sell products direct, you know, we don't have staff that can go support the farmer when he's down, you know, within say an hour of being down or whatever that might be. I mean, sure, if it's close to the factory here, but when you look at everywhere we do business. Um, so dealers are very important business partners to us because of the extension of the brand that they provide and the representation that they provide in selling. And, and many farmers say, you know, there's certain things that we'd be willing to buy online, but you know, many things, we still want that dealer and that relationship because when you have the relationship and you're down, you know, you know, somebody's going to be there for you to, to fix whatever's broken. So um, I, I think we'll continue to see the evolution of, of online sales where it makes sense. But when you have a highly complex product and technology products, like, um, you know, say planners, for example, yep. um, there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, that farmer wants peace of mind of being able to have support. And, you know, I think we've done a great job. We've brought all of our technology in-house. We have our own technology uh, division here at Kinsey. We're, I think that's one thing that's very common with the entrepreneurial mindset is whatever you can do something yourself, we choose to do that. And we've been successful doing that. And electronics was something we had sourced through third parties. We'd had a lot of challenges because they didn't understand either application, how it worked. They'd make it overly complex. 
Um, and so we said, you know, enough's enough. We want to be in control of our destiny. So we brought all of that in-house and we designed hardware, software, user interface for all of our technology equipment, which are planters. And we've had great success with that. Blue Vantage, Blue Drive, um, very, very successful. So, you know, we sought out when we, when we created uh, the display, the planter displays, we wanted it to be the easiest to use planter display in the market. And I believe we've achieved that. We've got many testimonies of farmers that, that say, yeah, that display does everything I need it to do. And take, for example, the 60, 70 year old uh, farmer like my dad that didn't grow up with technology and find it very frustrating. You know, we had one guy say, yeah, my dealer left the planter off and um, I jumped in the cab thinking I was going to have to have him come back and show me how to set everything up so I could go plant. And he said, I powered everything up. And within five minutes, I had the blue vantage display figured out and I was out planting. And I told my dealer I didn't need him to come back. So, you know, that is, again, the beauty of technology is great when it works. You know, we all we all feel that frustration when it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, many of us, I'm speaking of myself, you know, we don't necessarily know how to to fix whatever's wrong. You've got to go to some expert that knows how to fix it. But I think with, with what we've done with the technology, we've got uh, diagnostics in that too, where the farmer can, if, if something is malfunctioning, he can run that diagnostics and understand what is wrong with the planter, right, you know, right down to the row and, and whatever's going on. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's another thing that's changed a lot uh, here in recent years as technology has just really taken off, but technology also, can bring a lot of complications and a lot of frustrations. And, and in these times where uh, we've got shortages of componentry, some farmers are saying to take me back to the basics because, you know, I, I don't want to, to wait on technology components that are hard to get. Yeah. So I heard a thing about this. Why don't you give us a little insight on that, that some of this farm machinery to the person listening to this, that's not, you know, they might be in ag, but they're not really familiar with what goes on with equipment. My God, have we come a long way, not only from the Parker grain car or a gravity wagon to you hop in one of these tractors. It's it's nearer to a spaceship than it is to the old John Deere 4020 of yesteryear. You know, it's there's monitors and and, and there's uh, there's so much computerization and data tracking, et cetera, et cetera. Has it gotten a little too complex? Because, you know, you're like, hey, if this little thing is not working, I can't now go out and still farm is, are, mm-hmm. are we, are we at a point where like, man, we got to get our straighten out a couple more things because, and there was even some legislation proposed about this, about being able to fix your mm-hmm. own stuff. Give me the lowdown on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a double-edged sword in that on one hand, you know, farmers should be able to take equipment where they want to take it to be fixed. On the other hand, if you're going to give people access to your code and they're going to be making modifications, you know, it could be a very dangerous thing because that equipment is very, very large in the field, very heavy equipment. And you have something like that malfunction going down the road. It can be very, very serious. So that that's a double edged sword and and probably a whole nother uh, topic for another day. But I think, um, you know, that back to the, the benefits and frustrations of technology is the complexity of it. You know, I, I remember, few years ago, my dad got a brand new combine and we were sitting in it first fall using it. And it had an electronic malfunction where it thought something was wrong with the uh, bin extensions up on top where the, where the grain is stored. And um, it kept airing out and it wouldn't even go into drive because, you know, something was malfunctioning. Well, that had nothing to do with the combine being able to move forward. However, it just rendered everything uh, useless. And 
you know, so he called the dealer and uh, of course he was wanting to get in the field and get rolling. It was a beautiful day out. And the dealer said, well, it's going to be two or three hours before we can get out there, but here's a few things to try, you know, try shutting it off and restarting it and doing this and that. And, you know, eventually he got it to come out of it, but there was no, no diagnostic for him to say, okay, try this and this and this. And, and that's frustrating for the farmer when they're sitting there and, you know, they just have this error code, but it tells them nothing else. And, um, you know, it's frustrating. And so, um, you know, that's why we've worked really hard on the diagnostic piece of what we do, because we understand that frustration. Again, the difference of us being active farmers and and farming versus just an executive sitting in a business and and looking for what's that next thing we can make. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've got to you got to stay on the cutting edge of technology, but you've also got to be practical and smart. And I think that's something that really differentiates a privately held company um, you know, you look, the, the farmer is very, uh, entrepreneurial, you know, and how he runs his business has a lot of risk. Um, but the, the common sense factor is, is so important. And so such a big part, I think of agriculture and farming. Susie, you talked about the ability to get the stuff right now. We've got this thing happening everywhere in, in every sector. And uh, there are people that didn't know what had never heard of nor used the word supply chain until a few months ago. Now it's in their vernacular uh, and they even might kind of understand it a little bit. Um, those of us that maybe were a little more familiar with it kind of saw it coming. I did. I I shot a video. It was even carried on Forbes about the pig thing. A friend of mine called me up. He always, he always turns to me for ag information. He says, why are they killing pigs instead of like processing them? Like, why don't they just hold on? I said, where would, where would you put them in your house in, uh, in the suburbs <laughs> of Chicago? We're going to put them. People don't understand it. Yeah. Now they're starting to see it when they go to the store. Our farmers are seeing mm-hmm. it when they said, holy crap, I need parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How bad is it from your perspective as a manufacturer? You've got 650 employees. That's just U.S. or is that global? Mm-hmm. That's global global. You're trying to keep them busy making that blue equipment that you make. Mm-hmm. And you say all of a sudden one day you probably have one of your um, acquisition people come to you and say, you don't believe this. We can't get rolled steel. I mean, what's it look like? What's it look like from a supply chain thing? Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, I think that's, it's been very frustrating for us because you can have a say planter, very complex piece of equipment, and you can have one component missing and render the whole thing unusable. And so, you know, this last year when we built planters, we had to build them to a certain point, pull them outside until the components came in. And then we had to finish them, you know, rework. And then we, we put them through rigorous quality audits because whenever you touch a planter and do rework, you introduce potential for error or things not being assembled correctly. And so um, it was very intensive uh, build season this, this last year, you know, getting ready for last spring. Unfortunately, we didn't leave any farmer hanging waiting for a new planner. You know, we know of competitors that um, farmers had traded their equipment off, thought they were getting a new one only to find out they weren't going to have that tractor they needed to pull their planner and uh, not a lot of used stuff out there. Cause that's been eaten up. What are they going to do to, to plant? So um, the supply chain challenges are very real. They're very frustrating. Um, we've had to turn away orders for both planners and grain carts. Um, and, and that's frustrating, you know, when we've been in this down ag market for many years, and as we, we've seen now things start to bounce back this last year, where farmers now are wanting to buy, it's time to replace equipment because they haven't for maybe say five or six years. And now all of a sudden we've got all this demand and we're having to turn it away. 
all because of certain components. And it's just usually it's just a handful yeah. of components, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, tracks or tires when it comes to grain carts or whether it's, uh, you know, electronics components when it comes to, to planters or, you know, even other non-electronics yeah. components. You, you work you work for 50 some odd years building a company and being a good product and, uh, and, and having good sales force. And then you say, Oh, we, we, we can't even sell what we, we could sell, but we can't deliver what we could sell. Mm -hmm. And it's really, um, looking ahead, um, commodities, I guess beef fed beef, uh, is, Struggles, uh, dairies a little above break, even more than what I understand. Uh, tree products and some specialty produce did not do well. But in the world of corn, wheat, and soybeans, where you mostly live, meaning that's what you mostly sell to, had a hell of a year. Uh, farm people, when they have a hell of a year, like to go and reinvest, take that money and put it into new stuff. Um, like you said, you'll, you'd love to sell it if you can make it. So you're going to you're going to have a record 21 or is it going to be a below average 21 could have been a record if you could have gotten your hands on the right materials. And then what's it look like moving into 22? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly we, we could have sold many, many more planters. In fact, you know, we had some planters that we thought we were going to have some components for only to find out a supplier said, Oh, sorry, what we promised you now can't happen because of, these reasons, you know, whether it's a sub supplier or something, you know, there's, there's things outside of our control where you can do the best you can to plan. And we've got great people in our organization staying on top of all this, but ultimately there's certain things that we're just out of control of. Yeah. And so that's, that's frustrating when those things happen. But as you look now forward, um, you know, we've been very much focusing the last six to nine months on, you know, not only what are we doing now, but what do we do as we look forward and, um, our, our, uh, March to our executive team was as owners, we said, guys, let's go and buy the inventory we need for next year and pull that forward because we want to have, we don't want to have to turn orders away because we don't have materials. So they've been working very hard to pull as much of that forward for even next year's build of grain carts and planners. Um, and you know, again, we're, we're doing everything we can but we are at the mercy of availability and uh, we've got great suppliers, but um, many of those suppliers, again, can only get so much of whatever material and are limited as well. So I think as we look into the next year or so and, and a lot of the different uh, advisors and experts that are studying the industry, I mean, people that, that do this for a living say this is unlike anything we've ever experienced and mm -hmm. it's difficult to find the trends and patterns because we don't have you know, previous experience or things are all over the board, but I think we're going to see this. And I don't think this is just something that's going to end in six to 12 months. I think um, best case scenario, maybe 18 months, maybe longer. I hope not. And we'd, we'd all love to be wrong on that, but you just look at where things are at, even for things we're trying to buy this next year. And, and then of course you have the hoarding effect taking place. You know, you look at these electronic components and when we're competing with, uh, when, when the source of a lot of these come back to countries like Taiwan or China for some of the bare elements uh, needed to make the various components, um, you know, we're competing with the Fords, the GMs of the world, you know, they're really great big businesses. And a lot of businesses are buying more than they need. And that's what we call the hoarding effect. So 
how much of that is going to take into play and make this even longer because of those organizations that are buying more than they need and just continuing to keep that supply very, very short. So I don't know. I hope I'm wrong, but, but I think it's here for a little while and we just got to figure out how to manage through it. The toilet paper effect comes to farm (laughs) machinery and it's not just for a few months time. Um, I I agree with you. And uh, it's, it's a mess. Um, Do you see us, this is my last question that we finally get caught up and we work so hard that we make all this machinery and we're glutted. You know, we go from being thin to being fat. I, I see that happening because that tends to be the, you know, the mm-hmm. pendulum effect and whatever we'll go to where we're oversupplied on farm machinery. And then all of a sudden you're, you're selling stuff at very low margin because you, uh, you, you caught up and made too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly could happen. In fact, um, we have, executive meetings weekly. And, and my dad was in a meeting we had just this morning and he said the same thing. He said, you know, we've got to be very careful as we do all these things to also not go the other way, you know, where we have too much um, at too high of a price, you yeah. know, and now we got to sell it off and, and maybe the market has, has come back down. So that's, that's the risky part of our business. No different than the farmer has risk trying to decide, do I sell my corn right now at, you know, if I think say $5 is a high right now, let's say that's the, the price. Do I go ahead and sell a bunch of it or do I wait thinking it'll go up because I might wait too long and it'll go down. And certainly, you know, the farmer has no control over the market price. So he's, he's got to take the, the gamble and the risk of selling when he thinks it's at the highest. So in the same way, you know, we're taking the risk of we're trying to get as many components as we can yeah. based on what we think we can sell, but not be caught in that if the market changes we're not sitting too high. That's, that's the real delicate balance here. Uh, manufacturers like you and uh, certainly the bigs um, look to foreign markets. I know that I've got buddies that talked about that was where we used to dump our used machinery. Also, uh, you know, it wasn't uncommon that a 10 year old machine that uh, was not as, not as top of the line here, 20 year old machine kind of went uh, to the developing countries. And then also you talk about the Europe and uh, places like Ukraine, whatever, Brazil, you've got a facility mm-hmm. in Lithuania. How much of your sales without giving me the dollars, how much of your stuff goes outside of the boundaries of the United States of America? Yeah. I, I think that would be interesting to know as far as the use volume, because we see a lot of equipment here, that when farmers traded in, like say back in, um, you know, around 2015, I believe it was when dealers had a lot of in excess inventory, they're trying to figure out what to do with it. You saw a lot of dealers getting creative and figuring out how do I make international connections where this equipment is right size and right width for say going to the Ukraine or Russia and a lot of use. So we sell, we see a lot of used equipment go over there. Now, of course we don't sell used over there, but we see the markets pulling it. Um, over there. And of course we sell, we sell new, but um, you know, what we sell new is a much smaller fraction of our overall business. But in the same way, we've seen crazy demand here. We're seeing lots and lots of demand over there. Again, demand that we can't fulfill and we are fulfilling as much as we can, but the same issue. Is three quarters of your business in the, within the borders of the U S and one quarter international. Yeah, I'd say that that would be a good uh, way to do a rounding of, of that. Yeah. And, and it's the same. And essentially what you just said though, is you got demand you can't fill and you got uh supply mm-hmm. you can't because you're manufacturing somewhere over there as well for mm-hmm. that marketplace. Right. Yeah. 
Same thing all over the place. Her name's Susie mm-hmm. Veach, Suzanne Veach. She is the president of a company called Kinsey. If anybody wants to look the this woman up or this company up, where do they go? Kinsey.com is our website. And of course, we're out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I've got a lot of followers on Twitter. That's my business social media. So I've got personal uh, account and followers. And of course, we have a Kinsey account out there too. And then we've got a uh, book that we wrote, finally wrote, uh, farmers have been bugging my dad for years. You need to write a book on your history. And, and at our 50th, uh, back in 2015, we released 50 years of disruptive innovation. And so, you know, that's available too at our, our Kinsey store. And we've got an online Kinsey store. I think it's KinseyGear.com. There's a link to it on Kinsey.com. Um, you can go out and buy that. But a lot of farmers have enjoyed reading the book of our history to learn more about our company. And it, it's all in there. I've enjoyed learning about it also. I also enjoyed talking about big picture, about farm machinery from a short lines perspective and, and all that. And you know what she did because she's been back from her stint at Caterpillar long enough that she just kept saying Kinsey, Kinsey, Kinsey. She forgot that, dear listener, you might be saying, how the hell do I spell that? So I will tell you, it's K-I-N-Z-E. K-I-N-Z-E is the name of the company, as in Kinzabal, which was uh, her yep. father and her family's name. Yep, hey, first five I really letters, yep. I really appreciate the visit and the insights and the perspective uh, from your perspective about this uh, farm machinery business. Maybe here in a few years, uh, you'll come back and give me a, a, the, the, the update. What do you think? That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Her name is Susie Beach. My name is Damian Mason. Uh, please share this with all of your ag and non-ag friends alike. And uh, until next time, thanks for being here. It's the business of agriculture. Thanks, Damian. This episode of The Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com BOA, as in Business of Agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com BOA.